Hey, this is Doug Phoenix from King's X, and you're listening to the podcast with Jay Scott. It's called The Hook Rock. Check it out, and may the groove be with you. This will go on to the end. This will fight in ground. This will fight on the seas and oceans. This will fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. This will defend our island, whatever the cost may be. This will fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing ground. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Happy Halloween, everybody. How's everybody doing? Halloween is knocking at the door. Hope everybody's got their costumes, their candy, and their tricks ready to go in case they're asked. You know, I don't think people get asked to do a trick anymore. I remember when I was a kid, when you, you know, somebody would open the door, they would kind of fool with you and they'd ask you to do like a trick. And I'd do that like disappearing thumb thing that my grandfather taught me how to do or did for me when I was a kid. And, I guess, you know, they garnered some attention and I got some, you know, cool candy like Butterfingers or Snicker bars or whatever. But yeah, another day of stressing out my dog is upon us. So uh, I got to get some Benadryl for him to kind of keep him calm and uh, ready for the trick-or-treaters to come knocking on the door. It's Sunday this year, so I expect an all-day marathon of ghouls and goblins and whatever so i wonder what the most popular costume is going to be that's going to be a, an interesting thing but at any rate welcome back to the hook rocks i'm jay scott here along for another episode thanks for stopping by we are part of the pantheon podcast network a great family of music related podcasts you can check out so many different music related podcasts on that platform they've got something for everybody you can see uh you can search them on pantheonpodcast.com you can visit them on Twitter at Pantheon Pods and on Facebook, Pantheon Podcast. Great friends of the show are on there. Shout out Loudcast with Tom and Zeus, Cobras and Fire, Hanging and Banging with Carmen Apice and Vinny Apice, Martin Popoff, the rock historian, and the legendary Mistress Carrie, who has uh, a great history with rock music out in the Boston area. You can also follow us wherever you do podcasts. Make sure you set your app to automatic download so you get all the 
newest and latest and greatest Hook Rocks episodes right to your phone as soon as they drop. They're right there for you for your commute, for your lawn cutting situation or what you do on Saturdays when you're doing yard work. You put the headphones in and whatever. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Hook Rocks and on Facebook at The Hook Rocks. Some great episodes recently, some great episodes coming up. The next few weeks are going to be really cool, so I hope you tune in and uh, enjoy all the episodes. Some great new music spotlights with bands like The Warning, Classless Act, and a couple of others. We've got some stuff coming up here, too, as well. And the great interview with Bishop Gunn, Travis McCready. So for those wondering why the band Bishop Gunn is no longer and have been waiting for answers, that's a great episode for you to tune into. And earlier this month, we, of course, remembered Eddie Van Halen with Greg Renoff, the great author of Van Halen Rising. So check that out as well. Check out all the episodes. Leave us some feedback. Write us a review. And we've got another great episode for you today. Another live album review. We had such a success when we did Live and Dangerous with Thin Lizzy, the Thin Lizzy album released in the 70s. We're going to do it again, and we're doing it again with Robin the Hood at the Recividus. I'm not going to spell it. He can do that. What's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Jay. I'm uh, well, as is usually the case. I'm better than some and worse than others. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I'm looking forward to doing this since we first chatted about it. Um, you know, we're going to be doing these quarterly, these live album reviews quarterly. We started off with a great album with Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous, and here we are today celebrating Halloween, celebrating the horrors and the scariness of the holiday with Iron Maiden live after death. That's uh, yeah. That, that last episode was, was a lot of fun. And, and, and like that album, I really, I really dig this one because of the, the twin guitar attack, which like kind of speaks to my spirit. And so what a great, uh, what a great album to, to lead into the Halloween season. Yeah, and, and oddly enough, or coincidentally, one of the major influences on that dual guitar style that Iron Maiden has was the first band that we featured on this on these episodes, which is Thin Lizzy. And here we are talking about Iron Maiden, which has Thin Lizzy influence like all over their music. That's true. Yeah, I, one of the one of the cool things about it is when they have harmonized guitar lines, which is very prevalent in Thin Lizzy's music, but there's a lot of it in Iron Maiden's as well. And obviously these days they have a three guitar attack, so they can do all sorts of interesting things. But uh, um, the, the, the album in question here uh, came from kind of what I sort of think is their, their peak creative uh, time and probably the peak of their popularity. Although obviously they've, they've been very productive since then and put out a great album this year, which I have on two different colors of vinyl um and i'm thoroughly enjoying it as well so they, they haven't really dropped off in their in, in their product or that's the wrong word for it in their art is a better term for it uh, but i think this kind of captures them at their essence i've had this discussion before uh when you think of bands from that decade in the 80s i don't think there's another band that has the catalog that other bands have. I mean, you could maybe say Van Halen. Van Halen is probably the only other band during that time that released great album after great album. Even the Hagar stuff with 5150 and and uh, uh, OU812, when you look at those albums from Women and Children first through the 1984 album with Daily Roth and then on with Sammy. But I do think that Iron Maiden, no one touches them. When you figure their, their debut yeah. album with Iron Maiden, which was released in eighty. Then Killers, then Number of the Beast, then Peace of Mind, then Power Slave, then Somewhere in Time, Seventh Son of the Seventh Son, and then sandwiched in those albums is probably the premier live album of that decade, which is Live After Death. Yeah, and one of the, I mean, obviously they had they were hitting their stride here. Uh, they had five studio albums under their belt at the time that the, this album was recorded. They were in the midst of a marathon tour that probably ranks among the longest uh tour with most dates probably along with a couple of tours of metallica um from from the last 30 or 40 years uh and, and I, I agree with you and, and the remarkable thing about their success of the time is that they they basically did it with almost no 
media exposure. I mean, they released singles, but if they weren't singles that you would hear on the radio, at least no radio station that I could ever find. And they were not a band that was a darling of MTV like Van Halen was. I agree. I think that when you look at the history of Iron Maiden, and you look at those early albums and you think of the videos like The Trooper and Flight of Icarus and was it um, Run to the Hills and you know, those old you know videos filmed like on stages in the UK you know they were played in rotation in MTV but they were more like after the 8 p.m. videos or yeah, you know yeah. very rarely did you see a video from Iron Maiden like during the day when they were playing Madonna and Michael Jackson and van bands like Van Halen you know um so you're right they didn't really have a lot of media exposure the stations that played them were hard rock and heavy metal stations. They were never a crossover band where you, know, you could play them alongside of a band like ACDC, or, or and I shouldn't say that because you could, but you couldn't play them along, you know, on a, on a, on a rock station that was playing Duran Duran or right. uh, Men at Work or stuff like that. You just weren't gonna wasn't you weren't gonna hear Iron Maiden on those stations like you were gonna hear ACDC or Van Halen. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they didn't. They did it basically from word of mouth, and the imagery really attracted a lot of right. young people. I mean, that's one of the things that you know Kiss had in the '70s, and there were image-conscious bands, and there were bands that kind of touched on it, but no one really had that definitive figure like Eddie and that definitive image of like you know evil and horror and on their album covers, and just you know you think of the number of the beast or the killers cover and you think of peace of mind and then you come out with power slave that you know is this egyptian you know uh, themed cover it's just it was it was hypnotizing right the, the the kiss albums and and kiss's live shows obviously were very um theatrical and there was a lot of people drawn to to kind of the image of, of like gene simmons as the demon but it was it was clearly theater. But with, with Iron Maiden, uh, because they didn't get such exposure in the media, is they had like this enigmatic, sinister quality about them, which certainly is alluring to a lot of people, and clearly was alluring to me as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, I, it was. I mean, I still remember that moment where I was at a barbecue or a dinner at a neighbor's house with my parents, and. There was a kid a couple years older than me who had an, an older brother, and, and me and my brother went into this bedroom of where the older brother, you know, that was his bedroom, and there was this big wall poster from the bottom to the top of the Number of the Beast album, yeah. and it glowed in the dark. And I just remember sitting there mesmerized, like, what <laughs> the hell am I looking at? Like, because I was, I went to Catholic school for eight years, and this was like, like evil this was and it was so like drew, it drew me in like all right what does this music sound like and then we would play number of the beast and you'd hear you know the 666 intro to the title track song and the intro to run to the hills you know or i'm sorry the inner intro to prisoner um yes. and the drumming you know on that album and then into peace of mind with you know the trooper and flight of icarus and Die With Your Boots On and Revelations, which is my personal favorite Iron Maiden song. So, yeah, the image had so much to do with connecting with the youth because it was mysterious, it was hypnotic, and it was mesmerizing. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you talk before about having to be a little clandestine and some of the music you're listening to in your household. And Iron Maiden definitely had the type of albums where you wanted to you need to kind of smuggle that in because if the parents saw that, they would immediately whip you off to, to an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the bands that I had to sneak in were Ozzy, Maiden, Priest, and Motley Crue. Yeah. <laughs> and those were the albums that like I had to have. There was this, I had this bookshelf in my room, and behind it, there was a there was an open space from where the you know the the furniture piece didn't touch the floor. It was like an opening, and I would put all my cassettes that I had to smuggle in the house in that opening. And then whenever I went to go listen to them, I'd go you know move the garbage can out and you know go in. It was like seriously, like it was like a covert operation. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, um, I was kind of in the same uh, boat where that was a period in my life where my music collection was 
almost predominantly on cassette. So, which were much easier to smuggle than LPs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the the other striking thing about this album is the fact that the seventies were so full of live albums. Obviously, we just talked about the yeah. Lizzie album, but there was not a lot of live albums in the eighties. I mean, Rush had a couple. There was the Dokken one. There was the Deal one. Priest had one. I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting at the moment, but there really wasn't a focus on live albums. And when you think of the bigger bands in that era outside of Maiden, you know, Motley Crue never released a live album. Van Halen never released a live album. Def Leppard never did a live album. Scorpions is really the only other one with Worldwide Live that really competed with Live After Death in terms of its popularity. Yeah, I, I, I have to throw a plug in here for uh, one of my bands, which I'm devoted. And that was, um, if, if you remember from our, our initial conversation about the top five live albums, uh, Blue Oyster Cult's Extra Text Terrestrial Live was from the 80s. But you're right, it was a, it was a decade that did not have the wealth of, of live material um, like the 70s did. And I wonder why that was, because the albums in the 70s, the live albums in the 70s, were predominantly what broke a lot of bands, like Kiss. True like Peter Frampton. Um, I mean, obviously Peter Frampton had a history prior to that, but when you think of a Peter Frampton record, you think Peter Frampton comes alive. You think Kiss Alive. You think of UFO, Strangers in the Night, Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East, Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous. There's the list goes on that it was so important. That's largely because of Kiss, because without Kiss Alive, Kiss probably doesn't continue. Casablanca Records probably doesn't continue. And if there is no success with that album, there's probably not a lot of live albums that come after that. Yeah, you're right. There are some bands that were were made just because of a live album. I was actually listening to Allman Brothers at Fillmore East last night, and I don't think that band would have been what they became without that album. So I agree with you. I'm not sure what what led to the the drop-off in the 80s unless it was a change in aesthetic that was more towards some of the imagery and what looked good and, and perhaps the urge to video everything. And so there was some focus on that where it would be more expensive. I don't know, but um, this particular album um, to me has personal significance because I saw this tour and it was the second real concert that I went to. Um, and so it was, this, it's personal to me. You, you were talking about the Iron Maiden poster on your on your friend's wall. Well, I have an, a, a, a door poster on my bedroom door, one of the ones that runs the length of the door, of Eddie essentially breaking out of the door, and it was right in this time period. So, so this era of Iron Maiden is uh, quite important to me. <laughs> Do you still have the uh, door poster hanging up in, in your bedroom? No, I have no. I'm pretty sure that at some point when I um, fledged from the nest that my mom immediately sees the opportunity to dispose of it. I was going to ask, I'm like, is your wife okay with that poster? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. If I, had, if I had that poster, I might not be married. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I don't know where it went. <laughs> or maybe fortunately. <laughs> You you mentioned, you know, the nostalgia piece for you and the history for you with, you know, seeing this tour. I was only 10 years old at the time. And, you know, hearing this live album really captured the energy and really the essence of what I would have thought Iron Maiden sounded like. You know, not, you know, a 10 year old asking, you know, your parents, can you take me to see Iron Maiden? But it's probably not going to go over well. <laughs> So I had this. I had this as my only, you know, idea of what Iron Maiden sounded like live. Yeah, I, I remember um, because it was my my second true concert experience. The first one, by the way, was only a couple of months prior to that, which was uh, uh, Helix Whitesnake and Quiet Riot. And I was like addicted to heavy rock music live after that point. But um, I was I, I was I had just turned fifteen back around the time I saw this. This this tour happened. The World Slavery Tour and or the Power Slave album happened um, from I think it was from August of eighty four until about July of eighty five. So you're talking about uh, nearly a solid year of the band being on tour. And 
the album itself was um, taken from two dates on that tour, two sets of dates on that tour. Uh, the first 75% of the album was recorded in Long Beach. And from some of the notes I've seen, it, it, it indicates that they played three shows in Long Beach on that tour from the 14th through the 17th of March. But I've seen some notes that indicate that um, what you're hearing is probably from the final show there, which I think was on St. Patrick's Day. Then the final disc was from earlier in the tour that um, was recorded at the Hammersmith in London, and um, which was, I think, in October. So they had like got themselves warmed up and recorded that show. But then by the time they got the Long Beach show, they were like well into clicking with one another. And it's probably what lends itself to the quality of recording that you hear. Yeah, I mean, they sound really tight on this album. I mean, just, you know, the back and forth between Dave and Adrian, uh, Steve Harris sounds absolutely uh, amazing. Yeah. And yeah. Nico McBrain is just, you know, Nico and Steve just sound incredibly together, you know, great pocket, great, um, yeah. you know, back and forth with them. And then Bruce Dickinson, of course, who I still feel has really maintained a lot of his vocal ability, even approaching 70. He has. He, it's impressive. And I think that, I think he would be an interesting guy. If you could get him on your show, that'd be a thing. I think he'd be a very interesting guy to talk to because I, I know it's probably well known these days that he is a 737 rated pilot, which you're no dummy if you can achieve that kind of thing. And he, he clearly is an accomplished person. And, and I think he's a thinker. That's at least what I like to believe. So, I think he'd be an interesting person to have a conversation with. Steve Harris would would be too as well. Um, they're talking about a lineup that had been together um, for at least a couple of albums prior to this. Uh, with Dickinson had been with him for three albums. You had Murray and Smith who had both been there for four or five albums. Uh, Harris obviously was there from the, the beginning. And Nicole McBrain who had uh, been with him for two albums. And McBrain, I think you should just interview the entire band. I've just revised my opinion because Nicole McBrain strikes me as an absolute character um you know he doesn't play double bass which is just kind of blows my mind and i'm pretty sure i remember hearing that he and seeing that he plays barefoot all the time and the fact that he can keep up with that must mean that he has like a cardiovascular system that, that rivals some athletes <laughs> this is true i mean he does he does have a, a, a masterful ability um, I, you know, I never knew that he didn't play the double bass drum. I, I've always, yeah. I didn't know that. He's doing all, he could be like, you know, I hear, and this might kind of go along with some of the imagery that Iron Maiden has associated with this album. Um, uh, there is kind of a joke among pilots about, uh, pilots of like the, um, the Corsairs from, uh, the World War II era. Was that because they had that giant rotary engine, it created a lot of torque on the plane, the way the engine was rotating. And so they would have to counter that, especially on climbs out, with right rudder. And so there, there was some amusement about the joke that, that those pilots had a overdeveloped right leg when compared to the left leg. Well, I'm thinking Nickel McBrain might be something like that because if he's doing all that with his left, with his right foot, um, that, that, that must be a machine there on the right side. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when you think of the album and you think of the intro to the album, you know, obviously Ace is High is the first song and it's also the first song on Power Slave. But it's different because it's got the Churchill intro. Yeah. Which, you know, when you think of the stuff that they had in Number of the Beast, you know, the title track obviously has, you know, the intro and as does The Prisoner. Um, I, I don't know why they didn't include that on the studio version of that because it makes the song such an it has such an impact on the song and it, yeah. it's it's just amazing i mean if if you're what was the war movie that uh just came out that was basically about that um there's actually Dunkirk. there were two of them yeah two of them that had that speech in it uh we're, we're talking about churchill's speech that um, he delivered to Parliament on, on June 4th of 1940, which incidentally, what you hear is is not that speech because as it was delivered uh, the first time, because it wasn't recorded. I did a little looking into this. He actually went back, Churchill went back in 1949 and recorded it for broadcast, just reread his, his speech 
Um, but it makes a very powerful entry into a song that is focused on kind of the same theme. And both Dunkirk and The Darkest Hour with uh, Gary Oldman from a couple of years back uh, featured that speech. It, it is a, a powerful moment of English language oratory. I tend to think that he's a, he's a complex person. Um, there's, as with complex people, there's like good and bad. But I tend to think he may have been the greatest Western hero of the 20th century because he stood alone against Nazi Germany. And so having him in, as the intro into Aces High um, is kind of a captivating moment, I think. I've seen both those movies. And if you watch those movies back to back, you really get the full scope of that moment in history. Uh, Dunkirk yeah. is a is is breathtaking in terms of cinematography, in terms of how it was filmed and the tension that exists throughout the movie. And then if you watch that, if you watch The Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman who plays Churchill, it kind of you know it it, te- it shows you the moment. If you watch Dunkirk first, it it shows you what's happening, and then you see what happens as a result. And you know the moment that Churchill really shined during that moment and really brought the UK together, and like you said, stood alone against Nazi Germany. That's a great idea. I hadn't considered that. Um, watching those two movies back to back, I like that. He's got the time to set aside to do that. That, that would be a good uh, um, delve into history at that point. Totally. Um, my recollection of the show, uh, and, and because I, I mean, obviously it's been a long time since I saw the show in, in Denver, which um, I saw it in Nichols Arena, which doesn't exist anymore. It, it sat on the spot where the current Mile High sits in December of 84. And the opening act was supposed to be Twisted Sister. But um, the word that spread was, and they didn't actually make an announcement, so I, I think it's true. Um, I actually tweeted something about this, and D. Snyder liked my tweet, so I don't believe it's inaccurate. My understanding is that D. Snyder like hurt himself, like twisted his ankle really badly uh, immediately before the show, and so Twisted Sister couldn't play. And so on the Denver date, um, Iron Maiden came out and played for like an extra long time, which made it like a concert highlight of, of my my uh, background. Um, but my recollection is that from the intro after the speech, that little intro part of Aces High was recorded. And then right when the drums kick in is when the band, because the band like moved into position as that was coming, as that was playing. Uh, and then the lights all came on and the band started playing as it kicks in. That's interesting. I did not know that. I think that, I think, because I was actually listening to it again this morning, if you listen carefully to the recording of Aces High, you can hear that there's a slight change in character um, from that intro, as far as the way the music, the instruments sound, into um, the song really getting going. Uh, it, it's like it becomes a little raw. They did, they did the, the segue between them very well, but I'm almost positive that was a recorded portion. When you look at the set list on the album, you know, it starts with Aces High. It goes into Two Minutes to Midnight. Uh, you know, two big highlights of, of from Power Slave. Those are the first two singles, first two videos. Right. And then it goes into Peace of Mind, where they do the Trooper Revelations and Flight of Icarus. And then into Number of the Beast, where they do, um, was it, did they, yeah, they, they went into the title track. And well, they played "Run to the Hills" later on on the in the album, but yeah, that, I mean, right. so so they basically sh- uh, showcased those three first albums with Bruce Dickinson, and then they went into, of course, "Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner" and then "Power Slave." Right. They the um, disc one, side one, disc one, um, really kicks off with a lot of high energy. If you listen to the entire album, and this is, I don't think this this is not uncommon amongst live recordings. I think. Most of it is slightly up-tempo compared to the studio versions. And uh, sometimes that makes songs sound rushed, but in this case, it just speaks to like the energy of the band. And, and I think the tendency to do that comes from adrenaline flowing. Um, you, can, you can hear it. Like you walk into a guitar center, you hear somebody noodling around on a song. They almost always play it too fast because they know they're playing in front of other people and it, and it gets them, them going on it. But most of the songs here, I think, are a little more up-tempo than they are on the studio recordings. And the first four songs that they have, um, 
I'm sorry, the first three songs that they have on side one of disc one, which is Aces High, Two Minutes to Midnight, and The Trooper, are all high-energy songs to begin with. And so it really gets the blood pumping, gets the listener into the song, and, and like just doesn't let go of you. That um, you have some iconic uh, rhythm guitar playing uh, with, um, like, especially two minutes to midnight. So the opening riff of that is, is like something that makes you reach over and turn the volume up on the on the uh, whatever stereo you're listening to, and is really kind of indicative of the kind of heavy music that was being played at the time. I think. Um, and so the, the track sequencing here uh, is really well done. I think it is fairly reflective of their set list at the time as far as the order of, of things. Yeah, correction from me on that. They, after Flight of Icarus, they did Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Power Slave, then The Number of the Beast, and then To Hallowed Be Thy Name, uh, which, was, which just sounds absolutely incredible. And you're right. I mean, these songs, I mean, it's boom, boom, boom. I mean, it's so high energy. I mean, even when you get to Revelations after the Trooper, you know, and then you get go into Flight of Icarus. I mean, those songs are not. I mean, they're 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 mid tempo songs, but they keep yeah. the energy flowing. And then Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is just you know incredible live, and right. you know the way right. it's done. It, it you know it goes a little bit over thirteen minutes long on the album, and you know for a band to do that during the age of glam. And the style of of music that was happening around them to have a thirteen minute song, I mean that takes a lot of balls to do that. It really does. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I think everything about Iron Maiden um, from the beginning was about having the balls to do something that that wasn't going to get mainstream attention, and it was part of the essence of what rock and roll should be, and that is kind of like holding your fist or your finger up against the establishment and doing what it is that you feel and the fact that they were drawn to epic works of uh, poetry literature or in a couple of cases um, movies uh, that that they translated into absolutely outstanding rock and roll as kind of them being who they wanted to be I was you know when I was talking about the, the up-tempo thing it's most noticeable and I think in this case it was deliberate uh, it's most noticeable in Revelations where that, that song moves along at a much speedier pace than the studio version of the song does. Um, at the time that I saw this tour, Revelations was absolutely my favorite Iron Maiden song. And, uh, and so it has a little bit more of an energetic feel to it when you listen to it on this album. Yeah, I agree. It's it's still my favorite. Ever since I was younger, I, I love the song revelations i love the arrangement i love the the push and pull from you know mid-tempo to up-tempo and back and forth and and just the you know the acoustic element in the middle of the song that has like this this um this type of energy that's like uplifting as you're listening to it it's just uh to me it's maiden's perfect song yeah, and, and I it's still amongst, it's probably in the top five of my favorite Maiden songs. There have been a couple that have, have replaced it as far as the top song. Um, but one of the interesting things that I, I noticed in the liner notes that I don't remember this from the show, and it's entirely possible that it happened um, just because it's been so long ago, but Dickinson is credited with credited with playing guitar on this song only. Um, now, I know it's a, it's a Dickinson-authored song, um, I just I remember him being all over the stage, and he is he was always high energy when you watched him live. Um, and I saw Iron Maiden three times in the eighties, and and he would like he was very good at sucking the, the crowd into it and getting everybody up, and and it just he, he was he had to keep your eyes on him because he was all over the place. So he very well may have played guitar on the song when I saw them, but I just don't remember that. And it's funny because I do remember them playing that song. Yeah, I've never seen Bruce play guitar on stage, so that is interesting. Yeah, and it may have been just a little bit during the um, when they cut out all the distortion and the gain during the verse. Uh, maybe he was playing in, in that portion. I, I don't. I actually, I'm ashamed to admit, I have not watched the video of the concert from which the first three sides of the album were taken, and I probably should do that um, just to see what the performance was and, and compare it to my memory. From more than thirty years ago, thirty-five years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I actually was trying to piece together. I was listening to. The, I had some headphones on to listen to it. I was trying to 
figure out, okay, where am I hearing Adrian Smith and where am I hearing Dave Murray? At least for the, the, the Long Beach show, the first 75% of the album, it's clearly split in the channels where somebody's in the right channel and somebody's in the left channel. If I was forced to pick, I would say that Smith is in the right channel and Murray is in the left channel just based on the what I, my limited knowledge about their equipment and their playing styles. But I could be totally wrong. I'm sure somebody will correct me when they listen to this. <laughs> well, as we get to you know side three, which for those that bought the CD back then, this is where the album ended. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and Hollow Be Thy Name starts off side three into Iron Maiden, and then, of course, Run to the Hills and then Running Free. And I have to admit, being 10 years old at the time and discovering Iron Maiden because of the Number of the Beast wall poster, I never really knew much about their debut in the album Killers. And yeah. when this song was played on the rock station in Chicago, which was... WMET, and then I think after that it was WVVX. They had they played Running Free, and I'm like, wow, I've never heard this song. Like, like I've you know, oh, it's off of was it off of the first album? I want to say or Killers, and um, I think it's off the first album because I think Killers has Murders in the Room Morgue. I could be wrong. I don't have it in front. Of me. Uh, yeah, Running Running Free is off the first album. Yeah. So I never knew Paul Diano existed, you know, and and so then I went back and listened to the debut and killers after live after death. And that was a completely different experience than what I had come to, to know as iron maiden, what I was accustomed to. So, you know, it, it, that those two songs on, on side three or, you know, on which, you know, are on side three on the vinyl and on the cassette, but at the same time on the CD, this was the last, the last four songs on the CD because at the time you couldn't fit that much music on one CD. And they also didn't really release a lot of double CDs because the cost of a CD at that time, because they were new was pretty expensive. So people, you know, who got the CD didn't know there was another fourth side to the album after this, you know, after this side. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it was kind of interesting that um, if, if you're looking at the albums, Side three contains both of the songs that they released for singles from this album, the, the live versions. And what I really thought was interesting was the first single that they released from Live After Death was Running Free, mm-hmm. which was a Paul Diano song. And so I don't know if that was a deliberate effort to try and take the past and meld it with the, the present, where you have Dickinson singing instead of Diano. To me, the first time I heard Dickinson singing Diano songs and there's um, there's two of them on this side with Running Free and, and, and Iron Maiden. It was a little bit of an adaptation period, but but he kind of does a, a really good job. He doesn't try to sing it like Diano sang. Their voices are totally different. He kind of makes it his own and really brings his own. He, you know, he has that almost operatic style of singing. Um, but uh, he, he, he also has this ability, which I think very few singers have. The only one that comes to my immediate mind is Ian Gillen from Deep Purple to be able to scream in the correct um, key <laughs> of the song and then like maintain his, his pitch while screaming. And he does that pretty well when he's giving his renditions of these songs. I agree. You know, and he's never shied away from singing Diano songs or what was the other guy? Blas Bailey. Um, yeah, you know, he's yeah. never shied away from singing songs like, uh, oh God, what's the, um, what's the big song that I love? Uh, the Klansman, you know, he's never, he's never shy yeah. away from singing songs like the Klansman and, uh, it's credit to him. I also think too, when you look at how the album was listed on vinyl and cassette, what's really odd. And, and as more, I think about it, there's, there's probably a reason why is the album should end with Run to the Hills and Running Free, right? Because that's their two big numbers. They got Hallowed Be Thy Name. They got Iron Maiden on the, on the third yeah. side. And then the fourth side of the album has Wrathchild, 22 Acacia Avenue, which a great song, Children of the Damned, Die With Your Boots On, and Phantom of the Opera. Those songs, that those five songs are typically not going to be your finishers as Run to the Hills and uh, Running Free are. So the question is, is that knowing that the CD could only contain 13 songs, did they do that 
purposely to have those first 13 songs as a complete show or show that, you know, or, or, or kind of wrap up the Long Beach show and then add the Hammersmith Odeon shows on the fourth side that may have been included in that set, but they wanted to finish up the CD with Running Free and Run of the Hills. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that the that side four is kind of like a bonus uh, for having bought the album. Um, and it's, it's interesting, the original CD release um, for this album back in like 85, about five minutes out of a running free for length purposes. Um, like there's this big long segment in it where Dickinson engages the crowd and he has like the left side in one part and the right side thing going back and forth. And that's completely cut out of the initial release on CD. And then they had a, they've had a 95 reissue and a 98 uh, reissue. And the 98 reissue has the full Long Beach yes. concert on it. And that's the version that I have. Um, where you have the second CD, uh, which includes what was side four of the of the album, and and so I think I think you're right. I think it was designed to present the entire concert experience as it was given at the time, and then side four was was a bonus from the the Hammersmith uh, session. Actually, side four contains what I think is the only moment on the entire album that sounds. I don't want to be insulting because I have so much respect for the album and uh, the way it was done, but there's there's one moment in 22 Acacia Avenue that I think just sounds just a little silly where at the very beginning of the song when he says, place you can go, and then there's supposed to be an echo. I don't know if it's Smith or it's Harris doing the backing vocals, but somebody comes on and says, go, 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 and it sounds a little weird instead of having like, a decaying delay on it. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I I forgot about that actually. Um, you know, Twenty Two Acacia Avenue is widely regarded as like the best deep cut on uh, Number of the Beast because not a lot of people, yeah. you know, speak of that song when they're talking about all the great tracks on that album. Um, but yeah, and when you look at the the bonus stuff that came out on the '95 reissue, you know, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which you know, is is probably my favorite Diano era song. Um, that I think was on one of the singles. I think it was on the Running Free singles because Iron Maiden used to release these CD singles that they would put out, and they would have extra tracks or bonus tracks or songs that you know they wouldn't release. I think of the Somewhere in Time album, which came after this album. You know, there's songs like Juanita. There's songs like God, I'm, I'm drawing a um, Juanita is that one song, and there's another one I can't think of right now. But they would release songs that they recorded during these sessions that didn't make the album. And that was always really cool that yeah. they did that. Yeah, and actually, I had I had a friend in high school right right around this time. He's the one that I went to the concert with, um, who was absolutely Iron Maiden obsessed and was all about trying to collect every vinyl release that they had because they used to have these. Uh, they used to have like 12 inch releases of the singles that were really actually mini EPs. And they had that bonus material that you were talking about. My, my favorite, and sometimes they would have cover songs. My favorite Iron Maiden cover was their cover of Jethro Tull's Cross-Eyed Mary, which was on the Trooper release. And so, yeah, you get this cool stuff that you couldn't get on the album, which and plus you'd get the cool Derek Riggs artwork um, on all the singles as well. And so it's almost like they had little mini albums that you would, have to go out and find, which are actually pretty hard to find right now. Yeah, I, I've um, I've spent some time on eBay and Discogs um, collecting those, <laughs> and, they're yeah. not, and they're not cheap um, yeah. to do that. And I still have in '98. I was able when they did those releases, those re, uh, remastered and re-releases, and they were double discs because they had the album on one. And they had the extra material that was on the singles on the other disc. I have all those still. That's cool. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always made sure that I I mean, you know, I've lost discs. I've I've you know had discs thrown out and stolen. I've always made sure to keep those in a secure place. Yeah, the the ninety five uh, reissue had a bonus disc. Um, I think it was the CD that included other songs, including a very cool instrumental off of Power Slave, Lost for Words. They might have been the 95 remasters because they were both like, they were, they were two discs. And I remember they would put out like two of them, like every other month. Yeah. Yeah. May have been that one. Um, 
And they, there was a, a live version of Murder in the Room Org that was included in there that's not on the recording that I have. So somewhere out there is, is some more material. <laughs> that's awesome. What do you think this album really meant to their career? Because Somewhere in Time came after it. And you know when we think of the, the peak time of Iron Maiden, we think of Number of the Beast, Peace of Mind, Power Slave. Live After Death kind of puts like you know, a bookmark on those albums. A lot, a lot of people think, you know, I, the, the debut and killers are where it's at, but let's be, let's be fair. I mean, they're they're When people think of Iron Maiden, the majority of people think of those three albums. They came out with somewhere in time after that, it was a big album and it was probably their only, if there was such a thing, their only MTV album because true. They did look a little different. They did have a little bit more sequencing in their outfits, and the hair was, I wouldn't say teased up, but it was a little bit more flowing, and they had the big song Wasted Years and Stranger in a Strange Land, and there's some great song, other songs in there like Heaven Can Wait, and you know the got Alexander the Great is on there. There's so many great stuff in that, but where do you think, you know, what do you think Live After Death did for Iron Maiden? Well, I think your reference to um, calling it a bookmark is is accurate, um, both in terms of their approach to recording the songs and probably their exposure to the the global rock and roll community. Because uh, in the former, now the three the three tours that I saw Iron Maiden on were the three consecutive tours in the eighties that started with this one with the World Slavery Tour. And then I saw the Somewhere in Time tour, and I saw the seven, what they called the Seventh Tour of the Seventh Tour for Seventh Son of the Seventh Son. Um, and Power Slave is the last album, I think. <clears throat> excuse me, I think where they relied exclusively on vocals, guitar, bass, drums, and of course the famous quote from Peace of Mind that, that appears on the sleeve is, "No synthesizers or ulterior motives." And beginning with Somewhere in Time, they started including guitar synth in some of their, their songs, which, you know, as a, as a kid that was obsessed with heavy metal back in the day, I did not dig that at all. Um, and it kind of made my interest drop off. There's enough there that I, that I stayed with them for uh, a long time. But I liked the focus on the bass elements of metal. And when, when I speak to their global exposure, the World Slavery Tour also included the largest show that they played which was a rock and Rio show in, in uh, Brazil where they played to a crowd of 350,000 people. And if you've ever watched the uh, documentary um, on Iron Maiden, the, the flight of the beast flight 666, and I probably got the title wrong on it. It really gives you an idea of just how popular they are in South America. And I think this time frame really solidified that popularity. Yeah. I mean, when you watch that documentary, I think it's the Columbia show. <laughs> where people are crying when they come yeah. on on stage like it's the beatles you know like people are becoming emotional and after the show people are just like staring off into nowhere like they just had this religious experience you know right. and they're and they're so connected with maiden maiden is huge in central america and south america and latin america they're very they're huge and you really get an appreciation for them and their popularity in those areas like Brazil and Colombia. And I think maybe they played in Santiago, Chile. I think that that's one of the other areas they played. Was it Santiago? Yeah. I think it was. And, um, right. and they, you know, th- those three shows, you really, it moves you how people are so connected with that band in Latin America. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's cool to see people drawn to them that way. And, and, you know, you, you think of all the imagery and all those sinister influences that seem to be there. Um, and you don't realize until you, like, listening to this album gives you a taste of it. These guys have a sense of humor. I, I mean, the intro to Revelations, when Dickinson talks about it, he goes, hey, it's not a religious song. This is about a car wash or washing a car or something like that. And, and so they have that kind of tongue-in-cheek approach to things that uh, shows the, that, the hey, these guys, humor. Kind of, yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's like watching Benny Hill. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, you know, getting back to that that documentary and their popularity, I think you are correct in saying that this really solidified their popularity in South America, in Japan. 
No, I mean, of course, they had Made right. in Japan, too, as well. But when you think of Iron Maiden as a global entity, as a global artist, there's very few bands that are still playing today that that have reached that height of popularity. You know, I, I, you know, maybe they're not as popular as A, B, or C band in America. Maybe they're just under them. But globally, the very few bands touch them in terms of audience, in terms of how popular they are. That's absolutely correct. Um, so, okay, you mentioned that Revelations was your favorite Iron Maiden song, and, and obviously it's included here. Is there anything on the uh, recording that you would have liked to have had included that wasn't? That's a really good question. Uh, obviously, Murders in the Room Morgue, which I would I'd love to have that included. Obviously, that was extra material released later on, yeah. on a remaster because that's my probably my second favorite Maiden song, but definitely my top five. Uh, d- yeah, I would love to have heard that song. Uh, let's see. I would love to have heard The Prisoner live yep. um, on, yep. on this tour because that's one of my favorite tunes from Maiden. I would say that's another top five song for me. As far as other songs, I would say you know, Prisoner, Murders in the Room Morgue, and gosh, I'd have to really think about that. I don't know. I mean, I would probably start with those two. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, there's limited, a limited time frame, and, and when you're a band that has a, a getting into a fairly deep catalog at this point, you can't include everything. You know, there's obviously going to be fans of every song out there. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, that one of the always, you know, disappointing things was, was not having the prisoner on there because hear that drum intro, you know, would have been fantastic on this tour, you know? Right. Absolutely. um, Yeah. It was, you know, you know, die with your boots on is obviously on the, on the fourth, you know, side, you know, and obviously maybe when Eagles Dare is another one that I would probably put on there too as well. I, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to choose because it, it does really have everything you want on this album. I think that the, the song that my favorite Iron Maiden song um, is not on here and it's from that period. Um, and so it was available from their, their catalog and it's one that you don't hear a lot about but it, it it's it's a song that um i completely get into because of the way it increases its its tempo and um really just kind of speaks to me at a gut level and that's still life um the the, the song starts with the the backwards i think it's swahili <laughs> or, um at the beginning and then at the end of the song you hear some microphone bleed when it ends where somebody goes yeah that's a fucking good one and that is exactly how i feel about that song so if i could include one more song that's the one i would have on here interesting yeah i I, did they ever play that song live i the three times that i saw them they have not i'm I'm sure at some point they must have just because they have toured so much and i know that they do mix up their set list um so that's I wish that I could see them play that song live. Yeah. I did, yeah, there's a lot I don't remember I don't remember the last time they played Prisoner. I mean they haven't done that in a long time too. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's you know, I, I, I really feel a lot of nostalgia from this. I, I remember sitting in the audience as a kid seeing what was must have been like the eight foot tall mummy Eddie come out on stage with, with Dickinson. Um, it makes me uh, nostalgic for Derek Riggs's cover art because he was the one who created Eddie and did all the covers up through um, Fear of the Dark, I think. And I think it's kind of sad that the the connection was broken between the band and, and Riggs because I think that his his style of, of, of portraying Eddie was uh, very much a part of his signature. And, and so I would I love the covers. So the fact that he's not there anymore is something of a disappointment to me, but I know it continued it with some mixed success on the subsequent albums, <laughs> some better than others. <laughs> Why was there that separation? I don't know. I, I, I wondered that myself. Um, and it could just be that, that they, there was fatigue or something. I don't, I shouldn't speculate because obviously that's not my place to say it. I don't know the answer. I wouldn't want to cast any aspersions on the relationship. 
Um, but I would like to know what, what led to the decision that he didn't continue doing the, the album art anymore. Maybe he wanted to explore new things. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, sometimes that happens. You just want to go in a different direction. Um, as far as Iron Maiden after Live After Death, we talked about Somewhere in Time. Obviously, Seventh Son of the Seventh Son had a lot more synthesized synth guitar on the album. Right. Uh, it was the album is really layered with that that stuff. Although I do love that album as well. You know, then you start to get into kind of the darker period with Maiden when you go. You know, Fear of the Dark was probably their last recognizable album. You know, No Prayer for the Dying was was probably their first bomb in terms of popularity. Didn't really yeah, yeah. connect with a lot of Maiden fans. It really it's not it's not really admired by the fan base. And then of course Dickinson and Adrian Smith leave. They have a replacement singer and then they come back with Brave New World, which was is a fantastic album too as well. And I remember Getting tickets, and I've, I talked about this a couple times, getting tickets to see them at the Aragon Ballroom, which is like a 2,000-seater uh, place in Chicago when they released their last album with Blaze. And because the record sales were so bad and the concert ticket sales were so bad, they fired them. They got rid of them, and they brought back yeah. Bruce and Adrian. So I remember I had these tickets, yeah. and here's Iron Maiden with Bruce Dickinson, and... Adrian Smith playing the Aragon Ballroom, and I got tickets for it. And the last time I saw him was with Testament at Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. And um, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm at the front of the crowd, and it's a general admission theater. So they come on and they open up. I think it was with Aces High, and this crowd just rushes to the stage. I had to extend my arms so I wouldn't get crushed. For like two hours, I was dripping with sweat. I was. It was a great moment, but yeah, one of those. And I and I had a job interview like three days later or two days later, and I couldn't hear a damn thing because it was so loud. And I got yeah, the, I, I got the, I got the job, but I don't remember like I, I just I just gave like you know canned answers and you know basic you know general <laughs> cliche answers, and I got the job. So kind of a funny backstory. Yeah, I, I, I think that great concert experiences, um, like what you just described, and, and, and to me, if you have what is almost feels like, it may not truly be the case, but if it almost feels like you've had a near-death experience and survived, then the art has really reached you. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, that was the first time at a concert I, f- I feared for my life. You know, not because, yeah, of, I, not I, because I, of what was like the band was doing. It's just because the crowd was just like... Everybody was just there to see Maiden. Just went crazy when they saw Bruce Dickinson. Yeah, I, I had one of those experiences in '93. I want to say it was where I got I got into the mosh pit with Pantera. That was probably a mistake. <laughs> yeah, ever, ever tell um, you about that social distortion concert I went to like two years ago with a buddy of mine? So. And of course, there's a mosh pit at the Social D show, and this guy about my age, you know, early 40s at the time you know, turns to me and my friend, he's like, I'm going in. And, uh, he goes in the mosh pit, me and my buddy look at each other like, Ooh, geez. You know, I'm like the mosh pit is a young man's game, my friend. Absolutely. And 10 minutes later, he comes back with an exploded nose of like broken nose, blood dripping from his face. And I'm just like, yeah, how was it? And did you have a good time, buddy? <laughs> did you, did you enjoy yourself. What? Whatever gets you into the art, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I have no desire to go see a a, sh- a band and get into a mosh pit now. It's like I look, I look yeah. down upon the mosh pits and go, "What once was, what can be no longer." You know? Yeah, that that day has long passed for for me as well. But yeah. um, going back, going back to what you're talking about, as far as their development after this this period, um, after I, I think that there was maybe a declination in their songwriting a bit. I know that, I mean, if there's one person who is the heart of Iron Maiden, it's Steve Harris. And without Steve Harris, the the soul of the band wouldn't be there. And I know he went through some really hard times um, somewhere after or around um, Fear of the Dark and beginning in that period. I know he had some personal issues that were going on that really impacted some of his approach to his artwork. And he's obviously recovered really well. I, I kind of strayed away from Iron Maiden after that because I it wasn't 
as compelling to me as it used to be. And it wasn't until uh, some years back when a friend of mine who is, he's really more of a prog music guy than he is a heavy music guy. But he's like, you know, I really like Brave New World. You should probably give it a listen. So I went back and started listening to it. I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty good. And then um, Book of Souls, I think, is, is very strong. And I, I spent um, a fair amount of time on Twitter not long ago really trying to sell Turbo on Book of Souls. And then the, the current release, Sinjitsu, uh, which I may have just mispronounced it, um, has great sound writing and, and, a, and a great appeal to what I think Iron Maiden should be. And so they've really, uh, there, there was kind of a, a little dip as far as my interest is, is concerned, but they have come back and are as, just about as strong as ever. Yeah, I agree. I, I think Senjutsu is kind of like the Iron Maiden stew that if you stir up and you put all the music of their history or in their history into this big bowl, this big pot of stew, and you stir it up, you have Senjutsu because it really is everything Iron Maiden has done melded together, right? I mean, everything from yeah. the debut to Peace of Mind to Somewhere in Time all the way through Book of Souls and it's a fantastic album. And I really do think, you know, a lot of their stuff, I love Matter of Life and Death. I love Final Frontier. Um, you know, Dance of Death has a lot of great things on it, too, as well, like Passchendaele. Uh, and, I, and I love that stuff. So I, I do think that I'm, I may be one of the, I may be in the minority here, but Iron Maiden continues to release great music 40 years after they started. Yeah, and, and I think it's remarkable. I mean, these guys are obviously getting up there in age. I'm pretty sure Steve Harris is probably hovering around 70. Um, and they are they are working musicians. They're, they put out the record this year, which was a triple album, which just floors me. And then you've got, obviously, Adrian Smith has got the side thing going with Richie Cotson. Um, releasing the album earlier this year and they had uh, the new little bit that was just released like a week or so ago and then Steve Harris has been doing stuff with his side project British Lion and so these these, these guys are productive working musicians yeah I think you know you, you, you no one could say it better than what you just said uh, they're fantastic and you know obviously they're they're in their 70s they're approaching 70s depending on which member but you can't argue when you go see them you are going to get a great show. You are going to get something that is pretty close to what they were in their prime. Yeah, and I think that if you, if you listen to this record, one of the, the coolest things uh, for me um, is that, that not just the twin guitar attack, but the interplay with the guitar and Steve Harris's bass because there are intricate lines that all three are playing at the same time and they are lockstep in with each other. And, and that is is something special indeed, and, and and that really shines on this album. Well, the album is "Live After Death" by Iron Maiden. The guest is Robin the Hood. Hope you enjoyed our discussion. Uh, it was great to discuss this album and kind of take a trip down memory lane for the both of us. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm Jay. This is the Hook Rocks. And we will talk again soon. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 